Welcome to Odds Bodkin's Curiosity Shop, where you'll find the unique, the bizarre, and sometimes the haunted. Feel free to look around, peruse the items, and never fear. There's nothing here that bites. Hard, anyway. <laughs> well, hello there. So pleased to see you've made it back once again to Odds Bodkin's Curiosity Shop. I'm your shopkeeper, Chris Baker. And today, as we inch ever so close to Halloween, we've got a special treat for you. It's a book that you might find interesting as I pull it off the shelf of our bookcase of haunted tales, lost stories, and forgotten tomes. The book is Cotton Mather's History of New England Witchcraft, a book that may be familiar if you are familiar with one of the most famous tales told around Halloween. And that has always been one of my favorite things is short stories. And there's no better time for a scary short story than the Halloween time. And that is what we're going to talk about on this episode of Odds Bodkin's Curiosity Shop. I've always been a huge fan of the short story. Uh, really got into short stories that mainly thanks to Stephen King. That was how I got started into King. I got one of his short stories at a book fair at school, uh, Night Shift, and I was hooked on Stephen King short stories, but short stories in general. Since then, Stephen King, Richard Matheson, two of my favorite authors, and their books of short stories have just enthralled me from my teenage years when I really kind of started getting into reading more through my adult life. And I've always looked to find, I like a novel, but sometimes, you know, some novels just get very cumbersome when it comes to length. Stephen King is is notorious for that. Uh, so I like to, in between novels, when I don't really want to get into something long, I like a book of short stories because a short story, I can read one in a night, have it all, beginning, middle, and end. It's like a television show for the theater of the mind. So it's it's nice that you get horror. And I think horror uh, really lends itself. Science fiction, it's better suited for the longer format, such as a novel, I think. Uh, fantasy, also better suited for a novel. Uh, horror makes great novels, if done right. But horror is sometimes better in small doses. And I think horror is best suited, well, maybe not best suited, but it is well suited for the short story format. And one of my favorite things to do around Halloween as we get through October and get ever so close to Halloween is read some of my favorite short stories over again. Because a good short story, it doesn't matter how many times you read it. Like a good show, I could watch, you know, a good show uh, multiple times from, from the beginning uh, of the series to the end of the series. And I enjoy it just as much the first time as I have rewatching it the hundredth time. And a good short story is just like that. So on this episode of Odds Bodkin's Curiosity Shop, we're going to talk about some of my favorite short stories to read this time of year. It's not a long list, and I'm not going to dig too deep into these stories, but I uh, did want to share some of my favorite scary stories uh, around Halloween. And this is probably something, uh, God willing, if we do this again next year, uh, this is something we'll do year after year, go over some of my favorite short stories, and and maybe at some point I'll uh, request that you give me some short stories to read, and, and I'll talk about those in, in years to come. But uh, like I said, 
if the podcast lasts that long, if I last that long. Who knows what's going to happen tomorrow. But for right now, we're going to talk about some of my favorite all-time short stories to read around Halloween. Now, this isn't necessarily my favorite short stories all time, but ones that particularly lend themselves to the the haunted time of year, to that time of year when the veil between uh, the world of the living and the world of the dead is at its thinnest, and the ghosts and spirits and goblins and ghouls kind of break through and creep around in the periphery of our vision. Uh, it's those types of stories that... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that we're going to talk about here, the ones that have chilled me to the bone when I read those on a dark and chilly October evening. And we're going to start off with probably the short story that started it all, Washington Irving's The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. This probably considered one of the most early examples of American fiction that's had enduring popularity. It, it never fails. We get new iterations of Sleepy Hollow, The Headless Horseman, whether it's the Disney cartoon from 1949 to the 1999 Tim Burton theatrical release of Sleepy Hollow to 2013's uh, kind of crime horror series uh, entitled Sleepy Hollow. There's been different iterations of Sleepy Hollow and the Headless Horseman that have, have made their way into the into popular culture over the, the centuries. And that really is a testament to the the enduring nature of this story it's it's so simple in in its structure and but it, it's such a great story because Washington Irving really does a fantastic job the horror really doesn't come until quite near the end of it but there you get little tastes of it throughout this story uh, of course the story is about this school teacher Ichabod Crane who comes to this area colloquially known as Sleepy Hollow and starts a love triangle between Katrina Van Tassel and Abraham Van Brunt as Brom Bones as we as we as we've come to affectionately know him and it's an interesting story in so much that Washington Irving spends a great deal of time explaining everything and I think that kind of speaks to the curious nature of Ichabod Crane. Ichabod Crane is a awkward gangly man but he's well versed. It goes into a great deal to talk about how stern he is with his kids in his class, but yet will play with the older kids and and help the younger kids walking them home. It also paints him as a, a kind of a selfish man, so to speak, how he, he only walks kids home because he's hoping to get a free meal from the families. His relationship with Katrina Van Tassel is a teacher. He's teaching her to sing or giving her music lessons, so to speak and he finds her quite attractive she's she's quite attractive and her father owns a, a big farm and in one passage he's going to the farm and all he sees are the chickens and the roosters and the and the pigs and 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 all the fruits of on this farm's labor and in one aspect Washington Irving goes into great detail describing all the things of this farm, but he also goes into great detail of describing how hungry uh, seeing the chickens and how the idea of being with Katrina Van Tassel and essentially inheriting this 
farm in the future if if they should marry he finds that uh he's going to be just uh, inundated with all sorts of hams and chickens and pumpkin pies and it's just uh, a wonderful story if you love detail and Stephen King really does this, maybe not to this extent, but he is a master of detail. He's a master of world building. And Washington Irving really builds this world that we're entering into in The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. And that continues throughout this this entire story. You know, there's fanciful things when he's describing how Ichabod spends his days. Uh, there's beauty of nature when Ichabod is out in the woods and the birds that he sees and the the meadows that he he runs through and and then it turns darker when he's heading to the Van Tassels for the big uh, big party you see all the light side of the environment that he's going through and then as he's going home after he's heard these tales uh these ghost stories and even added some himself uh because he uh, is a he's kind of like me i love the bizarre i love the haunted i love the horror i love the fanciful the sci-fi the things that aren't explainable i was like that from the time i was a child but as a child growing up and being uh just enamored with all this this creepiness and this darkness and this bizarreness i was quite scared i would get myself worked into a frenzy to where i I was afraid of the dark. I was afraid of the witch in my closet. True story. I was afraid of the the hand reaching out from under my bed. I was afraid of all these things because I had worked up in my mind all these stories to a point where it felt like they couldn't be anything but real. And that's where we find Ichabod Crane. He's he's worked himself into this frenzy. He's He loves... Uh, the Dark and the Macabre. He has a copy of Cotton Mather's History of New England Witchcraft. He's he's enamored by uh, all these tall tales, all these ghost stories, but he gets too much of it in him and is, is constantly afraid. And as he's riding home from Katrina Van Tassel's, he's all this beautiful landscape that we had described in glowing terms before, the light terms, it all turns to darkness and everything in the dark turns creepy and scary and it's a macabre turn of the story and then of course we get the appearance of the headless horseman and that chase scene which is it's done for comedy in the 1949 disney cartoon but it's it's very much it has that pace of him racing for this bridge with the church on i believe it's on the other side of the bridge and the fact that he he all he's got to do is get to this bridge and then he's going to see the headless horseman disappear and then he he looks and the headless horseman doesn't disappear and the headless horseman's gonna is throwing his head at him and as we find out later it was a pumpkin and the story ends for those that haven't read it with the idea that it may have been Brom Bones playing a trick on Ichabod to to run him off so he could have Katrina Van Tassel to himself. I like to think that there's a little more ambiguity that it, it could have been the Headless Horseman. Uh, it talks about how the the wives who, who would know better believe that he met his untimely demise uh, thanks to the efforts of the Headless Horseman. But the the idea of the Headless Horseman has always petrified me as a kid. 
I remember back in 1980, I believe it was, that they did a, a made-for-TV movie based on The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. It's As a kid growing up, it scared the crap out of me. But I've watched it since as an adult. I think I found it on YouTube, and you can probably look it up and find it. But it stars Jeff Goldblum, uh, Meg Foster, Dick Butkus plays Brom Bones, and it's more of a comedy. And <laughs> I, I did not remember it being so comedic as a kid. But the the end, you know, the Ichabod Crane is being harassed essentially by Brom Bones. Brom Bones is playing all these tricks on him, disrupting the schoolhouse, making him think, you know, it's ghosts and things like that, supernatural things uh, happening. And it's played for a lot of comedy in the 1980 uh, made for TV movie. But <laughs> I should have known, if I would have known now, uh, that Jeff Goldblum was playing Ichabod Crane. I probably would have known that this is this was probably more of a, a comedy that I was remembering and not so scary, but but it did scare me. And we don't see the Headless Horseman until the, the end of the movie. Again, there's a big chase scene. It ends a little more of a happy ending when it's all said and done in the movie, not like the story, not like some of the other iterations of, uh, of the Headless Horseman and The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. But uh, but I remember that scaring me so much as a kid. Just the idea of this this horseman riding around on this black steed with no head or a pumpkin for a head or carrying a flaming pumpkin as it's depicted in uh, a lot of stories uh, just frightened me. I remember there was an episode of Little House on the Prairie of all things. The one where Laura and the other kid think that Nels Olsen chopped off Mrs. Olsen's head. It was a mannequin, but they thought he, he chopped off Mrs. Olsen's head and hijinks ensue. And as the two kids are running home, all of a sudden up rides this horse with a headless rider and he rears up and the kids run off. And that was so creepy. And so it was so odd for Little House on the Prairie to begin with. But it's things like that that just always kept the headless horseman in my mind and always brought an air of surreal creepiness that that I've always loved and while we haven't had a really good adaptation of the legend of sleepy hollow something that's not played for comedy this is perfect you could really play this for horror and not in the bizarre way that tim burton did it i, I didn't like that it added too much to it it's a simple story and it's a story that should be simply told and just let it be what it is. And you don't have to have Christopher Walken in some sort of leather S&M suit uh, <laughs> running around with fangs and, and stuff like that. Uh, you don't need that. Uh, it's a simple story that should be simply told and should just let the simplicity of the horror play itself out. Uh, I like the idea of leaving it ambiguous. Was it Brom Bones? Was it the Headless Horseman? Like I said, the story plays it a little, little closer to it being Brom Bones playing a prank and that uh, there's word that Ichabod Crane uh, showed up later teaching and, and going on to become a lawyer and judge and all this. Uh, but I like a little more ambiguity in that story. But the horror of it, the fright of it, that chase scene just has always creeped me out. Uh, from the time I read this as a kid to the time I re just reread it here not too long ago. Uh, another great short story that I love this time of year is Richard Matheson's Prey. Uh, Richard Matheson, of course, known for 
such great stories as Stir of Echoes, I Am Legend, many great novels, also a lot of great short stories, and a lot of teleplays. Uh, some of the old Twilight Zone episodes were based off of Richard Matheson short stories. One of the most infamous is Nightmare at 20,000 Feet. Just a, a horrific nightmare of a story. William Shatner plays the, the lead in that. And even the, the 80s Twilight Zone, the movie with John Lithgow. They changed the story a little bit. I think they got rid of the wife. It was less of him having a nervous breakdown and more of he was afraid of flying. That's why he was all freaking out. Uh, I think the the gremlin on the wing is more frightening in the the Twilight Zone movie than than the the one they have in the Twilight Zone episode with William Shatner, but still a great story. A story that they butchered, just bastardized. In the new version of the Twilight Zone, the one Jordan Peele is producing, uh, I just absolutely hated what they did to that great story. And I know it's supposed to be some sort of, uh, we're paying homage to it, but if you're calling it Nightmare at 20,000 feet or 30,000 feet, however you want to say it, it better be Richard Matheson's story. But that is, in fact, not the story that we're going to be talking about as one of my favorite short stories to read at Halloween time. The story we're going to be talking about is the Richard Matheson short story, Prey. This story has such a warm spot in my heart, if you will, uh, because one of the things that has always terrified me from, from the time I was young till, uh, let's be honest, until now as an adult, are dolls coming to life. They've always creeped me out. Dolls coming to life has always made me uneasy. From the time the clown doll comes to life in Poltergeist to the Puppet Master movies of the late 80s and early 90s, I still don't believe I've watched any one of those all the way through. I know, I mean, I love horror, fantasy, sci-fi, all that stuff. I should probably should watch them, but I have never been able to get all the way through without being creeped out. I should probably just man up and one day <laughs> sit down and watch at least the first couple. But Dolls Coming to Life has always creeped me out. And there's a great adaptation of this, which we'll, we'll get to once I'm finished talking about the story. But it starts out with this, this woman, Amelia. She's coming home. She's bought a gift for this guy she's dating and it's one of these zuni fetish dolls the doll is named he who kills uh you know he's got a spear these sharp jagged teeth and this gold chain and it, it essentially claims that the gold chain is what is keeping the spirit bound within this doll and if it breaks or you take it off it is going to unleash this spirit of this hunter, and his name is He Who Kills, so that should tell you something. And and the story, it has kind of a side story, a, a B story, if you will, uh, as Amelia has a, a rough relationship with her mother. Her mother's quite needy. Uh, there's probably some codependency going on there. She starts off, her mother wants her to come over, but she wants to spend time with her guy, Arthur, and that ends up, I can't remember if it, it he breaks the date or she comes back, but at any rate, the clasp on the gold chain that keeps the spirit bound in this uh, Zuni fetish doll uh, breaks, 
and the doll comes to life. Terror ensues with this, this little fetish doll chasing Amelia around this apartment. And all the things that are horrifying about dolls hiding under things so you can't see them uh, and trying to stab her. He has, of course, the spear. He's got the sharp teeth. He ends up with a, uh, a carving knife. Amelia wraps the doll in a towel, tries to drown it in the bathtub, but it is a doll. So it's not going to drown. Uh, she traps it in a suitcase. The doll cuts a hole through the suitcase with a butcher knife. There's so much viciousness in this. And there's teeth to it, figuratively and literally. There's teeth to this story. The mind's eye imagining this little doll chasing this woman around the apartment has has frightened me and given me chills for, for quite some time. Amelia then gets the doll and puts it into the oven, catches it on fire. The doll's howling and screaming as it burns uh, and black billowy smoke fills the apartment or at least fills the kitchen and the screaming stops. She opens the, the oven door. The doll is uh, essentially dead or as dead as a doll can be. But what happens when you burn a doll that has the spirit of of some killer in it when you when you burn it to a crisp that smoke essentially lets that spirit go and we find at the end of this story that she has been possessed by this by this doll and she calls up her mother to come over finally her mother wants her to come to her place well amelia calls her mother up or who we think is amelia calls her mom and tells her to come over and then the end of the story we we kind of get this image of amelia kind of crouched down on the floor stabbing the floor with this weapon and grinning with this feral grin revealing these horrific teeth that the zuni fetish doll had these spiky jagged inhuman teeth and it's just the the image is horrifying now in 1975 i believe it was another made for tv movie called trilogy of terror and it starred karen black and it was three richard matheson stories the first chapter in this this made for tv movie was julie based on the likeness of julie from richard matheson uh, the second story was Millicent and Therese. And then the third story was Amelia, which is based on Prey. And Karen Black plays the lead in all three of these stories. It was an interesting idea to have this this one actress play these th three different roles. Four, really, if you count Millicent and Therese. But it, it was a cool idea. And the first two, Julie and Millicent and Therese, were, were good stories, good Richard Matheson stories. But Prey really was the story that was the Amelia story uh, based on Prey was really the story that brought the terror to the trilogy of terror. And it's pretty faithful to the story, which I was very happy about, even even down to the very ending where Karen Black is crouched on the floor and, and stabbing the floor. And she's got these these horrific teeth of the Zuni fetish doll. It was it was some horrifying stuff at the end. But the bring the doll to life now it's low budget it's made for tv movie the special effects weren't great but they were effective for the story they were trying to tell and, and like i said anytime uh, a doll comes to life uh whether the special effects are are spectacular or not it's gonna creep me out and it really did the story justice because everything I had painted in my mind's eye as to what this story 
had going for it uh, was played out very well in this this adaptation. So really one of my favorite uh, scary stories to read around this time of year is is Richard Matheson's Prey. You can't get much better than dolls coming to life and killing people uh, for my money. Now, there's a book that I bought several years back. It's called Bloody Mary and Other Tales for a Dark Night by author Stefan Zeminowicz. I'm probably butchering that, and my apologies to, to Stefan, but, uh, or, or Stefan, however he, he pronounces it. But, but he's, he's known for editing and, and writing horror anthology books. And this is a horror anthology that he did. It's very simple stories. And it's kind of akin to Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, that series. Uh, it's not necessarily made for kids, because some of the subject matter in this book is pretty dark. But but they're simple stories, the kind of stories that you could tell sitting around a campfire. They even uh, break down the table of contents in sections. And the first one is Tall Tales for a Campfire. There's Tales for After Dinner. There's Urban Legends. There are stories for slumber parties, short shivers for long car rides, frights for the Christmas fireside, and Halloween horrors. And I, I really love this because when it comes to a real short story with impact and terror and something you can read really quickly, most of the stories are a few pages long, so you can re- sit down and read it in like 15, a story in 15 minutes. If that, and some of the stories are so memorable that I love to pull this book out every Halloween and read a couple of the stories, especially uh, stories that pertain to the the section on Halloween. And one of the things I do love about this book is that each story starts out with the legend that uh, the story is kind of based off of. And this story, Scarecrow, uh, one of my favorites. It, it pertains to Halloween. It's got a very Halloween feel to it. And uh, always always a fun story to, to pull this out and just take a few minutes and read this. Uh, it, it's not a difficult read. It, it's These stories are very simply written. There's impact with the horror. The legend is Halloween decorations are actually secret talismans to warn evil spirits away from houses that have them. And the story begins with this couple, Mitch and Jean. They move into this new neighborhood about a week before Halloween, and they immediately start noticing scarecrows in everyone's yard. Uh, decorations, whether they be big or small, hanging from doors or big elaborate uh, scarecrow displays out in the front yard. Everybody has a scarecrow in their yard. And they they think it's cute and a little kitsch and they're you know okay that that's fun but it's nothing that they really care to get into they start looking for a pumpkin because their tradition is the night before halloween they carve a pumpkin they put it on their front porch after having some trouble the the mitch character seems like a decent guy but he seems a little hot-headed uh uh, they, there's some simple stories that uh, it tells about him going to the grocery store and he can't find any pumpkins. The only pumpkins he can find are a part of a bigger display that involves a scarecrow. And he doesn't want to have a scarecrow. He wants to do his pumpkin. Uh, later that night, 
uh, the pumpkin gets smashed on their front door, on their front porch. He goes, buys another one, and they do this on Halloween Day, and they don't get any trick-or-treaters. The pumpkin's sitting there. They've got candy, but no trick-or-treaters stop at their house. They see some kids that kind of start to come up, but mom or dad pulls them away, and they can't understand why. Is it, you know, hazing because it's the, the new people or are they just, uh, you know, parents unsure that their kids are going to a stranger's house to get candy? Uh, they can't really make heads or tails of it. Night comes and goes and it's late. Julie's upstairs, I believe, working on something. And all of a sudden, Mitch hears a clomping on the front porch. He looks outside and sees that the new pumpkin has been smashed. He looks and sees that there's somebody there. They're wearing a hat, floppy hat, and a long overcoat. And he thinks they're dressed like a, a scarecrow. And as the creature clomps closer, he realizes that the stitched mouth isn't just a, a fake scarecrow. It's it's the actual mouth of this, this creature. What he thinks is a nose is a huge field spider. And he finds that there is this scarecrow that's come to life on his front porch. And like I said, it, it, it's a very simple story. It's a very, it very simply written. One of the passages from it just uh, is very chilling to me. It reads, the scarecrow took a step forward and Mitch saw that what was he'd mistaken for a walking stick was a weathered wood stave. It had a crossbar at the top. Its other end was a pointy stake. The thing moved fast. Mitch never had a chance, neither did Jean. The next day, the neighbors saw two scarecrows up on poles at the new people's house. They didn't look like the other scarecrows around the neighborhood. They wore Mitch and Jean's clothes, and they weren't stuffed with straw. But everyone agreed from the way they flapped loosely in the wind that they did a good job scaring things away. And just that, that idea that this scarecrow was warded off by these scarecrow talismans and these people and nobody had the wherewithal to tell these new people that hey you want to live you better have a scarecrow or or maybe they let it happen because you know it's a it's a sacrifice to whatever uh ancient gods are, are doing this but the fact that they let these people meet their untimely demise with this scarecrow and that the only thing they can think of is that uh, these two people up on poles as human scarecrows, all they can think of is they sure do scare things away. Uh, it's just cold and chilling and haunting. And, and like I said, this story, the stories in this book aren't purple prose. It's not very fancy or flashy. It's simple stories that can be read in a short time and simple stories that can be told around a campfire but boy are some of them really good and and i think a great base for an anthology series yeah you know, i could see some of these stories being fleshed out more in an episode of creep show or some of the other you know anthology series that have come and gone uh, i think some of these stories would make great uh, the scarecrow story would make a great creep show episode i think um for my money uh, another really good story that I like is actually the next story in this book. It's a story called Sweets to the Sweet. Another, again, another Halloween-based story. The legend is uh, trick-or-treaters discover that some house along their route had been dropping body parts into their bag. And we start out with this 
What I imagined is a kindly old woman, Esther Charles. She's preparing ingredients for Halloween goodies, and she keeps talking about how uh, it's her favorite time of year, and ever since she was a little girl, and we hear the, you know, they do the noises, chop, 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 slice, 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 grind, grind, grind. That's kind of a, a literary device that he does throughout this story. He keeps talking about no one ever makes Halloween treats anymore. It's all store-bought candy and goodies. Children have been kind of shying away from the homemade stuff because their parents are afraid of what kids might find in them. And then she starts talking about the kids, how how mean the kids can be. And just yesterday at the grocery store, uh, she heard them snickering, making nasty faces, and calling her nasty things. Kids are, are doing things to her house, essentially really kind of um, insinuating and actually does come out and say they're the caller witch. Uh, she talks about how they write vicious words on her windows, vicious words, unkind words, untrue words, witch, mad, murderer. And she continues to talk about how she caught one of these kids that was doing this and that she quickly put a stop to his lies. And then it goes great, great, great. Like she's grating. Uh, something for for this recipe it goes on to say she wouldn't let these unpleasant children spoil her favorite holiday she would give them her special halloween candies and a taste of their own medicine it goes on that when she had taken her purchases to the checkout counter when she was at the store the the day before and they were saying all the nasty things about her she remarked that a little girl had looked at the Sylvane packages of candy corn and told her mother how they looked just like teeth. Studying her ingredients, Esther knew that, really, it was the other way around, and that she's making these treats with the kid that she caught uh, writing nasty words on her on her home. And the, the idea, it's very Hansel and Gretel in the witch that uh, that wanted to bake Hansel and Gretel, the gingerbread house. I just uh, it, it conjures up pictures of that. There's few things scarier than witches at Halloween, and that notion that there are these these old crones or these old men that uh, are older than what they seem, and they have incantations and ways of doing spells and cooking people, <laughs> and the the idea of of her chopping up this kid and baking treats out of him and then handing him out to all the other kids is just it's horrifying stuff to me that's more horrifying than finding a fish hook or a razor blade in your three musketeers bar our next story is a short story by al sarantonio called boxes and i I love this story because one it's it's not a halloween story per se but it is set around October around Halloween time it talks about the the pumpkins and that orange glow of sunset as the sun sets on a, a crisp October day and these two boys Nathan and Roger want to see this man who collected boxes uh, for some reason they're fascinated by this this man and his box collection and I, I have to admit as I've gotten older I am fascinated by wooden boxes of all shapes and sizes so I I could kind of see now looking back that uh, I may too have been one of these boys fascinated bo- with boxes or I could see myself in the future being the man who collected boxes but they they essentially break into this guy's house 
into this room full of boxes, so much so that the room is a bit of a maze. And all of a sudden, these boxes start shuffling around and they're trapped. And you keep hearing talk of the this dog barking that they can hear. And when they're surrounded by boxes, they, they kind of lose all sense of the outside world. They're very much trapped. Uh, the man who collects boxes shows up. It's very odd and surreal and it's frightening the amount of panic that it, it seems to imply and it, it all culminates with the boxes shifting around and nathan and roger start to hear the dog again and roger goes to put his arm on nathan but nathan uh, pulls away and sees daylight and, and sees uh the wind this window that they can get out of and he gets out and it, it talks about he climbed quickly out hesitating on the ledge the dog barked once more sharply. He jumped down into perfect grass. Behind him he ran. He heard the shuffling of shoes and then the clean sound of one lid closing, then another. And it's like it's almost insinuating that Roger didn't make it and now he's forever trapped in this box, one of these boxes. Uh, Nathan could as well. And uh, that, that's one of my favorite things about short stories and, and short stories like this is one that sense of friendship. It's got a very something wicked this way comes by Ray Bradbury feel to it in that these boys have this friendship. Uh, there's a picture painted of the world these two boys live in. And the relationship they have, which makes it all the more tragic that one of them gets away and the other one does not. But that sense of that claustrophobic sense, this this story really plays into that when these boxes start to shuffle around supernaturally and and trap these kids and the terror that sets in with kids whenever they feel trapped. It's just a it's a great story and like i said it's set around october it's set around halloween although it's not a halloween story and that's that's one of the brilliance of the story and this time of year is because you know it doesn't have to be halloween for it to be creepy just that feeling that october brings it's a feeling i've felt since i was a little kid you know i remember standing out on our front porch and looking off to the one of the houses next door to us and they had these two gigantic oak trees the things must have been hundreds of years old because they're just massive and all of the leaves were off of it and the things look dead and there's that crispness in the air this gray haze to everything it just there's a sense of feeling of dread it's a sense of death it's a sense of melancholy and that's what october brings and i've always been fascinated with it ever since i was a little kid and this story probably one of the things i love most about it is it has that feel to it kind of like the same feeling that ray bradbury brought about in something wicked this way comes which is another one of my favorite novels but uh, this has that feel to it and one of the reasons why uh boxes by al sarantonio is one of my favorite short stories uh, again the story is probably about six pages long so it doesn't take long to read it at all but such a great story and such a, a fun 
in a wicked way, fun sort of story to, to read this time of year. And we're going to come down to my my two, my final two favorite stories. Like I said, uh, I can't talk about all my favorite short stories or, or even all of my favorite short stories to read around this time of year. We're just going over some of my favorites and then maybe next year we'll do some more of my favorites. But two stories that I absolutely love this time of year when we get closer to Halloween are two Stephen King short stories. One is off his book, Nightmares and Dreamscapes, which came out in 1993. Uh, the short story is called Suffer the Little Children. And this story, to me, what is so great about it is one, creepy kids. Creepy kids around this time of year will scare the bejesus out of me every time. Creepy kids any time of year really will do that. Because kids can be creepy. When kids say things out of left field that are just so odd and bizarre and don't make any sense, it gives an unnatural feeling. And that's really what this story is all about. This uh, woman, Emily Sidley, uh, she's a third grade teacher. And she's teaching spelling one day. And she gets this feeling that one of the students is staring at her. And she turns around and notices the student, Robert, uh, one of the quiet students in the class. It's got his gaze fixed on her. And then eventually, Robert starts taunting her, asking her if she wants to see him change. Which he does, uh, but it's played as though you're not sure if he actually changed or if she's just imagining it, it's a figment of her imagination, then she's she's quite mentally disturbed. But if it's not a figment of her imagination, then it's quite terrifying. And and she gets terrified regardless. She, she feels she saw something and you know she runs out screaming. After this, she takes a leave of absence. And when she returns, Robert's even taunting her more, taunting her at recess, telling her that uh, there's more creatures in the school posing as normal children and that they've replaced the kids and the kids are imprisoned in inside the, the mind of these pod people, doppelgangers, whatever you want to call them. And Robert, one, one of the more terrifying lines, Robert says, I can hear him screaming, Mrs. Sidley. He wants me to let him out. And like I said, to have a, a third grader coming up and telling you this as a, as a teacher, as an adult, you know, you think they're messing with you, but what if they're not? And, and that's a that's a horrifying thing. Of course, Robert uh, has scared her enough to where she's decided to take drastic measures. Her, her brother has a gun that uh, she brings to school, and she takes these kids 12 at a time to this testing room that's, you know, well-concealed and, and shoots them all. And another teacher comes in as she's a pair, as she's getting ready to to kill a thirteenth student, and then uh, wrestles the gun away from her. She gets put in a mental institution after the murders, and as part of her therapy, she's working with preschoolers, and she thinks she's doing okay. But then one day she gets that feeling she got initially with Robert and the other kids, that feeling that she's being stared at and she's being looked at. And she's removed from the room. And as she's uh, being taken away, some of the kids slyly watch her, implying that they're doppelgangers as well. And then that night, Mrs. Sidley commits suicide by slashing her throat. And then the, the psychiatrist, her former psychiatrist, starts investigating these kids or looking into these kids because something's obviously not right. And it's such a, a horrifying story. One, the thought that she has killed these innocent kids. If it is all a figment of her imagination, if it is all psychological 
problems, uh, mental illness. The fact that she's killed these kids is just a horrifying thing. But what's even more horrifying is that what if she was right and these kids aren't the kids that they used to be and they've been taken over by some entity, uh, whether it's extraterrestrial, whether it's demonic, whether it is some sort of creature. King never really gets into that, but he doesn't have to. And that's one of the great things about King and and a lot of his stories that sometimes he will show enough restraint to not paint the whole picture for you and leave you guessing and leave the mind to wander what could be going on here and and allow you to draw your own conclusions. And that's one of the beauties of this story. And that's one of the beauties of the horror of this story. So one of my favorite stories to read because it's so haunting and so chilling and so disturbing. It's the kind of story that if you really want chills during Halloween or really any time of year, this is a perfect one. And it lends itself to a lot of genres uh, whether it is demonic, whether it is you know a creature, whether it is uh, some sort of extraterrestrial, you, your mind can make any conclusions you want. It draws on all those different types of things that we find scary around Halloween. So that's probably why it's one of my one of my favorite uh, Stephen King short stories in general, but one of my favorites to read around Halloween, just because it's uh, definitely uh, the stuff of nightmares. And finally, probably one of my all-time favorite Stephen King short stories, but especially one around Halloween, because there's nothing scarier around Halloween than the Boogeyman. Of course, the, the movie Halloween, Michael Myers is referred to as the Boogeyman. And uh, this is a different kind of Boogeyman, but it starts off with a man, Lester Billings. He's talking to a psychiatrist, Dr. Harper, and he's telling a story of the murders of his three young children. He describes the events where these these first two children died mysteriously, unrelated causes. One was crib death, the other was convulsions or something like that. Uh, but they died uh, alone in their bedrooms. The only thing that kind of ties the two together is that both children cried about the boogeyman and uh, being left alone before they died. And the closet door was was always ajar afterwards. Uh, after discovering the corpses, uh, Billings is certain that the doors were shut before, but they're not after they find the kids. After the first two children die, uh, Billings and his wife, Rita, they become pregnant again. They have a son, Andy, and they even move to a different neighborhood. Uh, time passes and Andy's sleeping in the the master bedroom with them there's an incidence where there's it, it feels like there's been an intruder uh, he hears sl- things slithering at night then white night uh, rita has to go take care of her mother leaving billings and andy alone bluster billings then becomes uh, afraid that if something's going to get him it's going to be because of the the kid andy and he puts andy in a separate room knowing that the boogeyman is going to go after him that night andy cries boogeyman while he's being put to bed and then there's a disturbance billings goes in to see this creature i can't remember if he's strangling or shaking the kid but he runs runs to a diner and later returns to the house, calls the police, discovers, you know, Andy's corpse on the floor next to the closet that is ajar. He convinces the police that Andy tried to crawl out of the crib and, and fell and broke his neck. He talks to the doctor. The doctor recommends future appointments. 
and Billings goes out to make an appointment with the receptionist and she's not there. He goes back into Dr. Harper's office and Dr. Harper's gone. The closet door is ajar and out comes this boogeyman who's taken off this disguise, this this Dr. Harper type face mask. Uh, I I don't know if it's implying that uh, he skinned Dr. Harper and it was using Dr. Harper's face as a as a mask a la Hannibal Lecter or or what, but the whole idea of the boogeyman and being in the closet and coming out and killing kids is something that that's it's been scaring kids for centuries, if not longer. And this story is is so frightening and it's so tragic. I mean, Lester Billings is not a great guy, but you can't help feel sympathy for him by what happens to his kids. And he's not a good father and he's not a great husband, but he does love his kids. He does love his wife. What they go through with losing these kids in in this fashion, uh, you can't help but feel sorry for him. So as, as horrible of a person as he comes across as uh, from time to time throughout this short story, uh, y- you feel empathy for him. The horror of these kids being violently killed by this creature that you never really get a very good description of the boogeyman. I don't know whether that's to King's credit or a failing because... It does leave it open to the imagination as to what this creature looks like. You only get a sense of uh, the slithering. There's like mud or some goo tracked throughout the house. Uh, when when Billings thinks there's been an intruder, you hear how the creature talks. Uh, I can't remember if it sounds like he's talking through seaweed or something of that nature. And it's a very vague description of what this spade-like claw hands. I've never been able to fully get a, a good idea of what that means in my mind. Uh, maybe that's a failing on my part, but uh, it's it's a lot left to the imagination. And that's probably a good thing because the boogeyman is a little something different to everyone. But this story, just uh, the way it it draws out the tension of, of what's happened to, to Billings' family and then to climax with the fact that Billings has been telling this story to the very thing that has caused him all this heartache and pain and loss and, and then is going to probably meet a similar fate. It's shocking stuff. It's terrifying stuff. Again, the stuff of nightmares, which is what the master of horror, Stephen King, does best in in writing things that that leave you terrified and nightmare fuel now there was a an adaptation uh stephen king does what they call dollar babies where he'll sell the rights to an independent filmmaker sell the rights to a story for a dollar and i think his only caveat is that they have to send him a copy of whatever you know low budget film they produce based on on the Stephen King short story or or what have you. And there was one done in 1982, I believe. Uh, I'm not a fan of it. I I think it it is very cheap. It's very 1982. Uh, I I didn't care for it, but a lot of people seem to like it. I believe you can catch it on YouTube. It is interesting to say the least to, to watch it and see 
what little of the story they do play out on the screen. Now, there has been talk of an adaptation. Uh, I believe in 2018, Scott Beck and Brian Woods announced that they'd be adapting that story. In 2019, uh, I believe they said they were still working on it. 2020, uh, still as nothing has happened. So whether that project's going to move forward, uh, I don't know. Things got so screwed up with 2020 and COVID that it may still be in the works. Hopefully, I, I think this would make a good... I, I don't know if a, a big screen adaptation would work. I don't know if you can get you know an hour and a half out of this story, but I think it would make a great episode of an anthology, maybe something a little longer form than just 20 minutes to a half hour for like say an episode of creep show. Maybe if they gave this story the whole hour, I think it might work in that, but I would like to see some sort of adaptation of Stephen King's boogeyman off the night shift book of short stories. The first uh, book of short stories from Stephen King that I ever read was Night Shift. And this story right here was one of the reasons I fell in love with Stephen King and his short stories and, and, and his works in general. It's stuff like this that really scared the pants off me, scared the bejesus out of me, made me afraid of the dark. Even, you know, what I was probably 16, 17 at the time, uh, probably 16 years old when I first read this uh, this short story. And have been <laughs> afraid of the boogeyman. Well, I was afraid of the boogeyman before this. Uh, this didn't do me any favors and didn't make me any less afraid of the boogeyman after reading it. So there you have it. Some of my favorite short stories to read around the Halloween season. Uh, some stuff to, to fuel your nightmares and to fuel your love of everything that is haunted and that everything that is creepy around Halloween. And maybe we'll do this again next year with some new short stories. I, I don't have a shortage of favorite short stories to read around this time of year. So well, we'll see what, what I can come up with for next year. But until then, we've got a couple episodes coming up next week. Uh, I know on my schedule I had Monday's show as to be determined. Uh, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, the uh, season finale of Chapel Wait is coming up, and or, or maybe it was yesterday. We're going to do a recap of Chapel Wait. We're going to do that on Monday. And then coming up on Thursday's episode, just before Halloween, we're going to talk about some of my personal encounters with ghostly apparitions, things of horrific nature. And uh, I, I promise you, I've got some, I've got some decent stories. And you, whether you believe them or not, that is up to you to decide. I can vouch for everything I'm about to say, and I will take it uh, to my grave that everything I am going to tell you in that episode is true and did happen to me. Whether you believe it or not, that's up to you. But hopefully it'll be interesting. And hopefully, it'll, uh, regardless of whether you believe it or not, it puts a little bit of a chill down your spine. So we'll be talking about that on Friday. Don't forget to check out our Facebook page, Odds Bodkins Curiosity Shop, for all of the info that's going down with the podcast and all of the trailers and horror stories and articles that uh, I'm finding on the internet that I want to share with you. And so you can find it all right there for anything that involves horror, fantasy, and sci-fi. So until next time. 
Thank you for visiting Odds Bodkin's Curiosity Shop. We hope that you found something to your liking and visit the shop again soon. But even though you may come back, you never really get to leave Odds Bodkin's Curiosity Shop. Ha 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 ha!